Hi, everyone. It's Amy Rosenberg with Street Talk, a podcast about real estate and community. Because doesn't the community come into real estate? It kind of comes into everything. And so this week, I'm talking to Jen Carter, whom I met as I was flipping pancakes in the kitchen of New Avenues for Youth, which helps homeless kids exit street life. And as an ambassador board member, I get to go in there and serve um, breakfast to the kids. And actually, Jen was working there as the kitchen manager. And so, of course, I'm going to talk to her about business because I'm looking at her thinking like, well, you're, I mean, you're responsible for getting all this food. So it's a little bit more than um, flipping pancakes, what you're doing. So I'm going to distract you and talk to you. (laughs) And of course, she was wonderful. She obliged and talked to me all about it. It's because I was just wondering, like, how do you get all this food on the cheap for a nonprofit? And then a lot of stuff kind of came into the conversation. Um, and rather than having kind of a business conversation, we talked a lot about like legislation and food insecurity and like who is hungry. Cause I mean, it is a lot of minorities and people living in rural communities because the rural communities don't have the same access to food that we do in Portland and the same programs. Um, and so we kind of talk about that in this because I wanted to bring her back because it was such a good conversation. And you know what? She's the reason she tipped me onto this whole um, project with food insecurity. I mean, I know it's been a while since I spoke about it last. Um, it's just kind of hard to run a business and do all this stuff. But I do want to keep it going because this is a really big deal. You know, Oregon is the sixth hungriest state in the nation. That's one thing. And that's not okay. But the other thing is we are the only state in the nation that keeps getting hungrier. Okay, so let that sink in. And we do have good programs. Um, So why is this happening? Well, it's inflation. Well, the cost of living. So the rents are increasing. So access to food decreases. And so how does this affect people? You know, they would obviously rather skip a meal than sleep on the streets But nobody should go hungry. And Jen actually really understands this because she has experienced hunger in the past in a way. So she, um, I mean, she would have experienced hunger, I think, had her family not been so resourceful with gardening. So they actually raised a lot of their own food, but they did struggle. And so Jen's experience has been used as a former fellow for the Hunger Free Leadership Institute, which is um, a part of uh, Partners for Hunger Free Oregon, a nonprofit. So she was a fellow, which they um, kind of get together and help other people in the community with hunger and give them, you know, ideas on how to how to get food. Um, and that's an eight month program. And she's since moved on to be um, an advisor for this. And then she also now works for Metro Home Share, which is kind of like the Yenta of real estate because they match make people who need a place to live with people who need help paying their home living, you know, their cost of living at home. So somebody might come in and help an elderly person with the rent or the mortgage and, um, 
they're getting kind of a cut on the uh, rent and then they are helping that person who needs to pay for the rent um, stay in their place so that they don't have to move. And then you could possibly tie in other services into the deal like errands and cooking and whatnot because Jen actually says a lot of these people are elderly. So um, they might need those extra services anyways. And then maybe you could get a cut, you know, on the rent uh, for yourself. So anyway, this is a fascinating interview. We go over kind of what does um, hunger look like in Oregon and why are people hungry? I hope you listen to it. Thank you. services and getting to sort of figure out 
how do I feed them? And how do I stretch a budget to feed them? And how do I acknowledge cultural differences around food? And how do I address difference in tastes and youth who maybe came up in families that didn't have a lot of access to fresh fruits and vegetables while you're also trying to follow the Nashville School Lunch Program and all of these federal rules around what people are supposed to eat. And it's like juggling all of these balls that are in fire all at once. And it was really a great way to be introduced to the anti-hunger movement and also sort of combine all these different aspects of it mm-hmm. while eating homeless kids' cookies, which is just fun, right? Well, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, there's a lot we can talk about with that, but I'm curious because now you're with HomeShare, so I'm wondering what you're doing for them and what HomeShare is all about. Yeah, so home sharing is this idea that we could better utilize our existing housing options. And so you take primarily older adults who maybe have larger families and have larger homes and are now on their own. Maybe they have lost a partner, maybe their kids moved out, and they have a large amount of house. And their property taxes are going up an average of about 3% a year because of the rising pop of Portland housing market. And they're realizing that their income is going down. And so we get to utilize their space by helping them find people in their area who are having a hard time affording housing. And then also, those people can help them maintain their home with for a reduced rent. And so, oh, say you're an older woman, maybe you're 70, you don't need to go into a retirement community, maybe you don't have the money to afford a nice retirement community, or you simply don't want to leave your, leave your neighborhood. But you can't keep up with the gardening, and you don't really drive that much, and you to go to the grocery store because you can't walk to the grocery store. And you have a 45-year-old woman who makes $16 an hour, and it's not nothing, but it's not low enough to have affordable housing. Mm-hmm. And it's not really enough to pay $1,200 for a one-bedroom. Right. And so we help them find each other, mediate a rental agreement. Oh, you're like a matchmaker. Right. <laughs> That's mutually beneficial. And maybe the woman does some chores and some maintenance and helps her go to the grocery store and pays $350 a month in rent. Oh, that is so cool. Yeah. And so how long has that been? I mean, that's, so that's a concept, but it's also like an organization, too. It is both right? of those things. So, it's also kind of a movement, which is interesting. So shared housing was a home share program in Portland for 30 years. It was started in 1982. Um, and it ran until 2012, 2013-ish. And it shut down because by the end it was dependent upon the city of Portland funding. And the city of Portland cut funding, partly because they were cutting different funding, there wasn't enough advocacy for why that funding was important, and so it just sort of got lost along the way. Mm-hmm. So Metro Home Share is sort of a revitalization of that program. Um, we have new partners, it's all new staff, but it's really a similar concept, but we're introducing more mediation, we're introducing more, we're introducing a lot of like education around fair housing laws and landlord-tenant laws, and we're working with clients for up to two years after they're paired to help them really talk about problems so that we can address them before people we can do a crisis point. So it's a slightly more hand-holding for clients who need it, but no hand-holding for so if you are both able to form this agreement and work together and everyone can follow roommate laws, unlike any roommate I've ever had, yeah. right? <laughs> um, <laughs> then, then you're great and 
goal is really to help older, older adults stay in their neighborhood if they want to and utilize existing real estate. Mm -hmm. And then, so, and does food come into that at all? Or maybe not. And that's what you do on the advisory. So um, food comes into everything. That's, okay. that's going to be my answer. Um, seniors are disproportionately hungry across the country. They, especially in areas where housing prices are really peaking and rapidly going up, like Portland, right, where we have something like a 60% increase in rents over the last five years. Um, so seniors are deciding between housing and food, between medicine and food, between transport and food, and giving them an extra income, even if it's a small amount, eases that burden and lets them continue to eat what they need to eat to stay healthy while staying in their homes. Okay. Because earlier when we were on the phone, you had said something like, as rents increase, the food decreases because people will choose mm -hmm. to pay for rent over food. Yep. It's really common for people to skip meals or even not eat for a day a week in order to be able to afford their housing. Mm -hmm. Because most people figure I can eat less, but I don't know what living on the streets or living in a shelter will look like for me. Well, I mean, then there's the safety aspect. Absolutely. So you'd rather skip a meal, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's where some of these programs come in to hopefully help them find out food and right. ends meet food-wise. Right. And so having different housing alternatives is great because it frees up their income, but then you have things like SNAP, which is a Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, which is a federal program um, that helps give additional monies towards food. Um, we think of them as food stamps. Mm -hmm. And then there's okay. programs like in the summer, you can go to certain farmers markets and they'll do double your bucks up to, up to a certain amount so you can increase your food and your vegetable and, and fruit uh, consumption. Mm -hmm. Um, and there are lots of food pantries in Portland, lots of local ones, um, combination of rented schools, rented churches, other religious communities, community centers. Um, I would say almost every neighborhood probably has one and they don't necessarily know that it's there. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of older adults and lower income people are frequenting those. And so, yeah, that was going to be my follow-up question to that. I mean, that resources are there, but is everybody them? Everybody's not using them. Uh -huh. um, that is definitely a problem. Some of that has to do with not knowing that they're there. Mm -hmm. Some of that has to do with not having the ability to get there for transport reasons. If you don't have a car, if you aren't healthy enough, or if you don't have the physical ability to use the trans, like to get to public transport from where you're at. Um, if you are working two jobs and you can't go there when they're open, mm -hmm. there's a variety of reasons. And there's also, especially in people who are recent immigrants, there's a fear of that you will need to identify yourself and what people's immigration status is. Most food pantries won't check. Anything associated with the Oregon Food Bank will will not. That's good to know. Yeah, we should yeah. let them know that. Yeah, <laughs> and the Oregon Food Bank does let them know that. And they have, a lot, I know they used to send out emails to all their partner agencies, but I think they have something on their website too that identifies that. So that's really good to know. Yeah. Um, so then speaking of like immigrants and refugees, I mean, sorry if we're just kind of jumping all over the place, but that's okay. Uh, that's what I do. So um, last week I spoke with Kyle mm -hmm. um, with the Sunshine Division, mm -hmm. and we talked about the Portland Public Schools not necessarily cutting the lunch program, but kind of not making it free for all of the students if 
they already were having it for free. Right. I don't know if that yeah. if any more news has come out about that since then. So basically what happened is there are twelve Portland public schools that are doing universal or free for all lunches. And this is connected to a federal program where forty percent of your students are getting are basically enrolled in like SNAP or enrolled in government food assistance programs, then you can qualify for this program. Maybe the whole school would qualify. The whole school, yeah, the school can basically can cover the whole school with their with their funding. And there were changes to the funding, um, or and this is where the like it's unclear changes to how many families in school areas were enrolled in those federal programs, and so their ability to apply shifted and so the three Portland high schools that were involved it are no longer like able to afford that going forward and it 12 schools in total um, they still do breakfasts and they still offer reduced lunches and free lunches for those who qualify for it but it's just not the whole student body anymore. okay yeah so it's not like no one's eating lunch it's just that it's this nice program that enables families to worry about five fewer meals a week that now is not necessarily afforded to everyone. Well, that not only that, I mean, not everyone's even going to fill out. The, so do they have to fill out paperwork to, to actually access this, this free food? You might not know because you don't know. So it's yeah. based on income, family income. Um, and I've never worked for a public school. So the program that I worked for, there was an assumption that everyone qualified for a free lunch. And so we were refunded at the highest rate. And that's sort of what happens with the, the national school lunch programs is that there's a tier of how much they refund you for per person. And that's based upon the income bracket of those people. And there's like a whole calculation based around it. Um, and the people who are deemed in most need would qualify for free, but there's levels of reduction. And how schools sort of report that and how schools measure that. I yeah, or a public school question. Yeah. And I did that's just what I worry about yeah. is like how the schools measure it and how people can qualify because especially with the immigrants and refugees mm -hmm. not wanting to fill out a lot of paperwork, understandably. Right. And logistically because it might not be in the correct language. Right. Um I just worry about the kids getting the food. That's honestly a legitimate fear across the nation. Um, families that are hesitant to get involved in government programs don't benefit from government programs, and school lunches are part of that. And that's the nice thing about free lunches for the whole school is that it covers everyone. Um, there are people who are immigrants. There are people who have religious reasons to not fill out forms. There are people who mistrust the government because of family histories in foster care or family histories with the, the you know the police officers and mm -hmm. the judicial systems and, and there's lots of reasons for it um and there will be people who could benefit from programs who aren't accessible well and not only people it's children children especially when we're talking right. about so it's not like even the children's belief or their you know disengagement with you know red tape it's it's uh, it's their parents that mm -hmm. might and there are also people who are in this weird period, like weird area where they don't qualify. They make too much to qualify, but they don't really make enough to feed their families on top of rent. And there are a lot of families that fall into that category. Um, and 
where food pantries are helpful for those families especially because they can access additional food without having to be in local government programs. And different food pantries have different rules about how frequently you can come and how much food you can get. There are some pantries that this is the amount you can have if you have four people in your family and they don't ask a lot of questions. Mm -hmm. um, so it's sort of about finding the service that's right for you. Obviously, emergency food programs are not ideal, but if they help fill that gap, then they help fill the gap. So they're going to really have to start stepping up then because... You know, Oregon Food Bank is one of the best food banks in the country. They are a national model, and there are a lot of partner agencies across the state who work really hard at feeding people. Portland metro area has a lot. Other parts of Oregon have fewer. Ontario, which is out of eastern Oregon, has a branch of the Oregon Food Bank, and they have been attempting to get a wider network in the very rural area, which is an ongoing effort on their part. Yeah, I mean, so earlier you were saying Oregon is number six in the most hungry states in the nation. Yeah. Oregon is ranked, ranked six in the in terms of hunger in the United States. It's also the only state in the country that has an increase in hunger over the last few years. So it's, each year we're getting hungrier and hungrier. Each year we are getting hungrier. And we also have a, one of the best SNAP enrollment programs. And so they're looking at why is that happening. People are signing up for SNAP and they are signing up for assistance. Why are we getting hungrier? And the answer is rising cost of living is not being matched with rising wages. It just isn't. Um, women are disproportionately hungry in Oregon. People of color are disproportionately hungry in Oregon. And people in rural areas are disproportionately hungry. hungry. Mm -hmm. So, And then when you're talking about the cost of living increasing, I mean, I, I know it's happening in Portland because mm -hmm. I live here, but is it happening in it is happening in other areas. Obviously, the level to which it's happening in the Portland metro area is happening very rapidly. We can see it happening, um, but it is happening in other areas. In rural Oregon, you see a lot of people who are what would be considered underemployed. They have seasonal work. They work at places that are being like small mom and pop shops that are not making it work, so they have fewer and fewer hours. Um, you have people who are there temporarily and so that's sort of what's feeding into the hunger in the eastern Oregon. Also changes in farming and the winter comes through and kills your crop for the winter and you're on a large scale onion farm. How do you mm -hmm. pay your employees? Mm -hmm. How do you feed your family? Sure. Um, so the issues are definitely different in different regions, but there, I mean, look at Eugene and Ashlands and other places in Oregon, property prices are going up too. Mm -hmm. So it's just, yeah, very widespread. Yeah. Um, so what what county is the most hungry in our state, would you say? So there are two counties out by Ontario, and there's Malheur, and there's another one that I cannot remember the name of right now. That's okay. We'll and they put it in have, the blog Yeah. They have really high child rates of hunger. Um, one of them has something like a 20% rate of child hunger, which is very high. Um, and a lot of it has to do with all of the issues that are affecting Eastern Oregon in general, and then different school programs that may or may not be available. So Portland is great because we have backpack programs, we have school lunches, we have school, school breakfast, we have summer meal programs and parks that are pretty easily accessible, but not everywhere in the state has that. Oh, okay, so we still have the school lunches. I mean, 
It's yes. just that not all of the um, schools, not the 12 schools just won't get it for free for everybody. Right. But so are you saying that in other areas in Oregon, they don't have that? They don't have There are some free places that don't have lunches. school lunches at all. Right. Okay. <laughs> I, mean, I didn't even know that. Okay. I, just I, mean, assume, I don't know what, like, I, you know, when you live in a certain area, you assume that everything is going to be the same everywhere else. And it's just not. Okay, and so this is what you were talking about earlier when you were saying how we legislate food and where our resources go. Is this kind of a, an example of that? Right, it is. And, and one of the things, so this is actually a happy story, but with the budget cuts for 2017, the July legislative session, one of the things they were looking at cutting was the farm to school program. They didn't cut it, but it's this idea of get helping get fresh fruit and produce directly into the schools. Um, there's also a program that works with people on WIC to increase their access to food, for, to fresh fruit and, produce, uh, fruit and vegetables. And that program also not only didn't get cut, it actually got additional funding. But these are these are items that most people don't pay attention to, right? Like you're looking at if your taxes are going up, maybe you're looking at school bonds, you're looking at road construction and who's running for mayor. But these are programs that really directly affect a large number of people who if a program is cut, it drastically affects their quality of life. And so it has to do with not just how much money is going to schools, but if it's being directed towards these types of programs that help give nutritious food into schools, um, but help help create school lunch programs that are in school versus that are sort of centrally located, which is not bad either. It's just a different way of running. Well, it's harder for the kids to get there. <laughs> when they're not in the school. And usually if there's a if the district has a central location, what they do is they prepare the meals and then ship them out to the schools. And some of that has to do with how much it costs to have staff at each school. Some of that has to do with not all schools have kitchens that are equipped to deal with the type of food they have to prepare. But obviously if you're preparing food in-house, the quality, like you're gonna have more fresh fruits and vegetables because you're not keeping the food constantly. Mm-hmm. But so speaking about um, legislation, I mean, would you say that more of the conservative counties or areas in Oregon are, is that why people are maybe more hungry as well because like the taxes aren't going to the food program? I, you know, I'm not an expert on that. I would definitely talk to um, the Oregon Food Bank and have them direct you to their east office Eastern office out in Ontario, or I would talk to Partners for Hunger Food Oregon has child nutrition specialists who like they their whole job is like helping get meals to schools, and then they also have a SNAP specialist, and they would be really good resources to do like specific county laws rather than like overarching state laws. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm just curious. It just seems like maybe the more conservative areas might not want to put their taxes into programs. I, I, my guess is that that is part of the trend, but what that looks, but I also wonder like how big is your tax base? So Portland metro area has more taxes coming in, so we have maybe, maybe we also have the more liberal like, oh, let's feed everyone, but we also have more money to deal with. And if you're in a county that is not as well populated, that's really struggling to keep basic needs open, and you also don't have the push from the community to create these programs, there's probably lots of things going on. Mm-hmm. That's true. Um, so what is the population of, you know, Oregon's hungry? Because I think in another 
um, conversation. We've been talking a lot lately. We have been talking a lot. Another conversation, I think you mentioned like 40% of African Americans are hungry. Is that? So I've seen two numbers. One is 40% and one is 30%, which are both too high. Right. Um, and so. And that's 40 or 30% in Oregon or just national? In Oregon. Okay. Oregon has a, honestly, African American population in, in Oregon is just massively disproportionately experiencing hunger. And so does the Latino population. If you look at both, they're really high numbers. Um, and there are lots of reasons for that. Um, a lot of it has to do with systemic racism that is tied to the founding of our state. Mm-hmm. Um, it has to do with really displacing the population, specifically in Portland, over and over again, which makes it hard to build up equity. It has to do with just general racism, right? Um, people have lower paying jobs. They don't necessarily have ownership of homes. And I'm not saying that that's true of everyone. I'm just saying that there's a disproportionate level of that happening in the African-American community versus the white population in Portland. And you just now mentioned something about how our state was founded with some racist ideology, I guess. We'll yes, yes. So Portland's uh, forefathers did not particularly want people who were black in the state, um, unless you were a slave, which is oh, unfortunate. There was a lot of back and forth between uh, whether or would be a slave state or not, and it was never, it never was, it wasn't going to be, but there were weird exclusion laws, like you couldn't come in, you couldn't live in the state unless, if you were African-American unless you were a slave, but then you had to be freed after two to three years. And then in, I'm trying to remember the year, 1857, uh, an exclusion law was created that if you already live in the state and you're African-American, you could stay, but no one else could settle in the state who was African-American. And that law was not necessarily well um, enforced. Mm-hmm. But it was a known law. It could be enforced. It wasn't written off the books until 1926 it was repealed. But the language was not removed until 2002. Wow. So it wasn't a law that long. People just didn't go back and take out all the racist language. Oh, OK. Well, let's just keep that in there. Right. right. I think no it was worries. just like, well, it's not a law. And people didn't notice, right? Like People just didn't notice it was still in there wow. until it was made a big deal of. That's frightening. Right, and so you have a state that people weren't legally allowed to live in, and then with the railroad, a lot of people of African American descent worked on the railroad, and so as Portland became, as the, as the railroad became more part of Portland, people could live around the railroad who were African American, so they were around Union Station, um, you get Old West Hotel, things like that, to live around that area, and then the population gets forcibly removed by the city over across the River because it well because it was all organized where they could live so they, they couldn't live anywhere no so first they're saying maybe you can't come to the state oh wait maybe now you can but if you come you have to live in this certain area right but then we're going to move it on you right so that what that means is you can't own a house or you can't yeah. build up equity right you can't build up equity and they couldn't own a house anyway well yeah, that was exactly. part of the lies that you couldn't own property um and then how do you well it's okay. I mean, I think in the, in the 1920s when they repealed the law, mm-hmm. that would have been a part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm not sure exactly when. But I mean, in what is now Moda Center, but in that area, there, there became a large African-American population. 
lots of business owners, thriving culture, thriving community, and then they toured that neighborhood out to build the Memorial Coliseum, and so they got the community got shifted again. Mm-hmm. And then in the 1970s, they toured out a large part of the community to build um, Legacy Hospital, mm-hmm. which didn't end up getting built there because they lost the funding. They'd already torn down part of the oh, other. Okay. Yeah. So families are just getting con- to, like continually shifted. So it's really hard to build up equity mm-hmm. when you're just being moved around all the time. And for I mean, like you were saying. For a long time, there were only specific neighborhoods that people could live in, and, and there's only so much space in the neighborhood. And then, but it's so, in terms of shifting people around, I mean, it's still happening today, right? I mean, isn't that, and well, not still, it's like especially happening today with how much Portland's growing. Right, with, I mean, the, the dirty word is gentrification, right? So with gentrification, people are getting pushed out, and that is increasingly happening, and it's affecting North and Northeast Portland, um, and especially the older adults who have lived there their whole lives and are being pushed out really far southeast and they don't necessarily know their neighbors anymore, and that's hard. It's hard when you get to a point in life where community is partaking, and community is always important, but when you're older and you might need more support and you don't have that because you've been forced to move into an area where you don't know anyone and you can't walk down the street to a grocery store and you, you know you can't walk to your church or you can't walk to your place of worship and so communities are really being pulled apart mm-hmm. that's sad but so is that where home share comes in then so that's where home share potentially comes in so we are part of a lot of different agencies and one of them is the african-american alliance of homeownership um homeowners Mm-hmm. And uh, they are located in Northeast Portland, and they work really hard to help people who are in the African American community get homes and also retain the homes that they have. Um, foreclosure counseling and financial counseling and all of that. So they're a really interesting organization, and we are working with them, um, but working with a lot of other agencies as well that are helping support communities of color that are being affected by the shifting. Yeah, real estate market. <laughs> well, and every time you have to move, I mean, people need to realize you've got to pay a new rental deposit. Right. You have to pay the application fee to right. apply right. in the first place. And so all of that means your food, right? Right. <laughs> it does. All of that means your food. And also the reality is you have to find a place now. So you maybe have lived in an apartment or a house for 10, 11 years, and you've been able to manage to just get by on the rent, and then suddenly you're in the rental market, and you're looking for an apartment that everyone else is looking for, and you have first and last in deposits, but you also have to qualify. And if you are a single mom with three kids, if you are an older adult living off of Social Security, it's hard to qualify because you might not look as appealing on paper, or you might not get there as fast, or you, the myriad of things that might Totally. And then, so what is um, the Hunger Free, what is it, the Hunger Free Leadership Institute? What is that, how is that working to address hunger in the state? So the Hunger Free Leadership Institute is working to identify leaders in communities that are underserved. So it is looking for people who have lived experiences of hunger, particularly single moms, people of color, senior citizens, rural Oregonians, and helping to sort of help them network and then also help them have um, 
access to this wider lens of partners for hunger free Oregon and sort of help them develop skills if they don't already have them that would allow them to do more work. Okay, so wait, so you're the leader you're talking about that you're helping identify is like literally in that community. Literally like, like a peer of that. A peer not like the mayor. Nope. We don't want the mayor. Okay, so you actually <laughs> so you identify a peer mm -hmm. in the community and then and then what do you do? So then it's an eight month program um, where they work on a classroom project with part of their cohort and the cohorts are based on subjects. So there's one that has to do with identifying issues in rural Oregon. There's, which in eight months, that would be the perfect person to talk to, actually. Oh, yeah. Um, there's one that's all around SNAP benefits and what they do and how they're used and hurdles to using them, hurdles to applying for them. So there's all these different categories. And it's really about helping them become kind of an expert on that topic and then use what they've learned and, and sort of reinsert it into their community and utilize whatever skills and knowledge that they have gained to work with in their community. Oh, cool. Yeah. Is this like a volunteer per, like position for them? It is. And they can put it on their resume. They can put it on their resume and the goal is for it to be enriching for them in their community. So we're looking for people who already are somehow involved and are showing that they already have a passion for this, but also are really of the community. So it's not necessarily the person who started their own food pantry, though that would be great, but it might be the woman who goes to the food pantry once a month and helps out and really helps people in her her mom group or in her community or her church identify resources. And so people who already are showing that this is something that they are aware of and concerned with and then can use what they know and really increase the level of help and the level of voice that they give to the community. That's awesome. So then how do you guys identify these people? They apply, which That's is good, which is, you know, and so it's about talking to as many agencies and church schools and faith communities and like social work outreach places and community centers as possible and having them help get the word out and then bring in these applications and then reading them and sorting through and interviewing people and really getting a sense of who the cohort should be. And then what do you do as the advisor for that? So I'm part of an advisory group. Okay. Um, and what we do is sort of talk about what we want the program to look like and then also look at applicants and help pick the people and sort of help identify how this should work. So as a former fellow, I have a different lens than maybe someone who was has been a board member of the larger agency, which is Partners for Hunger Free Oregon, because I've been through the program before, so I can see what worked for myself in the cohort and maybe what didn't work and bounce ideas off of board members who are maybe working with funders a little bit more. And so we kind of find this dance of where it needs to work out. Mm -hmm. So I have, um, I think, one last kind of question slash comment for you, unless there's anything that you think I just missed. Um, I mean, I don't know. There's so much to talk about. Is there anything else that you think that, that relating to hunger and organ that I should have asked you? I mean, I think for me, the real next step is if people want to do something, what do they do? Thank you. That's yeah. A, that's <laughs> a good point. Because um, it can seem like a really big thing. Um, so what I would say is uh, organhunger.org. You can go there and look at letter writing campaigns or volunteering to sign people up for SNAP. There's a lot of different opportunities there. Um, you can go to the Oregon Food Bank and volunteer at them, their organization. They have a variety of volunteer opportunities. Um, go to your local food pantry and ask to 
help or look for a community garden. There's a lot of different ways of being involved depending on what your interest is or level of involvement, anywhere from like campaigning in Salem to helping harvest a community garden once a month and sort of getting involved on that level. Yeah, and I'm glad you bring up campaigning in Salem because <laughs> I, earlier I meant to ask you, is there any legislation coming up that we should pay attention to if um, we're worried about hunger? You know, a lot of what was really coming up went up in July. Yeah, yeah. So right now it's about learning who your local representatives are and seeing where they stand on different issues and really let me hear your voice heard. Okay. And so reaching out to them through letters them. or phone calls even. Yeah, don't be afraid to make a phone call. If you want to call them once a week and talk to their assistant and slowly wear them down, yeah. at least they'll hear a voice, uh -huh. right? And so I think that it's really about deciding what is important to you and what you want. And if it's really someone, like if it's your local council member, you might be more likely to get a meeting with them than the governor of Oregon. And so find the people who are most willing to meet with you and talk to you, figure out if they're supporters of what you're looking for, and then like work your way up. Yeah, and then the thing is, is it sounds like there might not be a lot of people going to bat for hunger just because. So like they're maybe talking about things that really affect them. Like these people who might have the resources, you know, and the energy to go to bat are talking about other issues maybe. I think there are always more issues than there's time to talk about, right? I think everyone has their own personal issue, but hunger is interesting in that it really affects lots of different communities. And I think that most of us can agree that people should eat mm -hmm. and children should eat. Mm -hmm. And so I really feel like it's a unifying issue that sometimes gets lost in the number of voices that are all talking at the same time. Mm -hmm. That's true. Well, thank you. Um, oh, well, the last question, which I might, you know, we'll see if it's, uh, you know, I'm curious about just nutrition in general and what you, what we feed kids. And so I'm sure we're working at new avenues. I mean, there's some real serious things. Like, so when I'm volunteering at new avenues and a kid comes in and says that he's gluten free, it's like, you, you do want to take that seriously because he's actually is possibly gluten free. And then some organizations just don't have any food that mm -hmm. they can feed them, and then they end up eating gluten, and then they're, they're shocked for the right. rest of the day. It is hard with emergency food because there are people who have medical conditions and food allergies, and emergency food services can't always accommodate that, and so then you're choosing between eating or getting sick. Um, people who have medical issues, disabilities, anything that would restrict their food are particularly vulnerable when they are to live within the emergency food system. Yeah, I mean, and I was talking with a teacher who works in um, a population like this, not not New Avenues, but um, not quite the most privileged population, I'll just say. And they're coming in with things like candy and chips and mm -hmm. so to eat. And so she used to have a basket of fruit on her desk. And so she would notice the minute that they took some bites of an apple, the mm -hmm. color would like flood back into their face. Yeah, healthy food is better for everyone, right? And that's why we want fresh produce in schools. That's why we want, you know, people to have increased access. And why people eat chips and, and candies, A, because they taste good, and B, because they're cheaper. But it's, unfortunately, there's this idea that people who are poor only eat those things, which is not really true. But sometimes that's what they have access to. And kids like junk food, right? All kids like junk food. And so I don't know anyone who doesn't. And and if 
what you have in your house is that and you're gonna take that and it's it's you know there's a lot of complicated issues around that but obviously healthy food is better for everyone and that is one of the things that it's great to do if you're a teacher if you work with kids like keep fresh food on your desk and offer it to them it not only gives them access to fresh fruit but it might also increase their desire for so when they're older adults, they might be like, you know, I really love apples, whereas if they just didn't grow up with them, they're less likely to. Well, again, yeah, it helps them sit throughout the day. It does. Maybe a little bit more, right. usually, and learn. Yeah. <laughs> Take something in. And then, so what last thing I'll say is I we were shopping at Fred Meyers this summer, and I noticed that they give all kids a free piece of fruit. Yeah. Which is genius. Yeah, it's genius. Also, Fred Meyers is, is great because they always have all of this leftover produce, but they're really good about giving their leftover produce to places that can get it to people who need it. And so that is not surprising to me about Fred Meyers, but I think it's a wonderful thing because it, it helps families feed their kids healthy food. Yeah, it just goes through and wraps the fruit. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much.